The title of today's message is uh, When Greed Becomes a Virtue. When Greed Becomes a Virtue. Did you know there is an entire theological system within Christianity that has sprung up that has turned greed into a virtue? Kate Bowler from Duke Divinity School calls this system the deification of the American dream. You know what the American dream is, right? It's the, the rags to riches story, like you, you're, you're poor and you're weak and you're undone, but through your own strength and ability, you can become wealthy and strong and powerful and you can become rich and you should become rich, right? That's the American dream. It's the, the Rocky Balboa story, right? Like you can do it. You can conquer those unconquerable hills with your own power, strength, and determination, Well, the theology uh, that teaches this actually says that wealth is actually God's destiny for anybody who has faith enough to believe it. In her book, Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel, Bowler tells us how this happened. It's the convergence of two streams of thought. First of all, you have black preachers from the 1920s and 1930s promoting a gospel that taught that poverty is sin. If you're poor, you're sinful. And then Eastern liberal-minded preachers like Norman Vincent Peale from the 30s and 40s pushed a gospel that said you can do anything through positive thinking. And so first let's look uh, for a moment at the poverty is sin gospel. These are characters like Sweet Daddy Grace, Father Divine, Reverend Ike. They were celebrity pastors uh, and they, they were wildly famous and um, I'm going to be critical of them here for, for a few minutes, but let me just say, um, when it comes to preaching, nobody does it better than a black preacher, in my opinion. They have something that white folks just don't got, you know, they, they, they can capture words and say them so well and so powerfully, and I have, I have lots of respect for the, the, the uh, how they do that, it's, it's, it's very, very good. Um, But anyway, these guys shifted the definition of faith from a confidence in God to a power obtained from God. Faith, they would say, is all you need to open the storehouses of heaven. And they would get into their, their, their character and they would start preaching and the, the audience would, would respond. They, you know, they would say, do you hear an amen out here? And the audience would say... Oh, yeah, that's exactly how it would be. And they would get excited about it. And and there was things to be excited about, to be sure. But they twisted it, right? They would say, the cross cancels the power of sin, but it also cancels the power of poverty. Amen? Let me see your gold ring, you know, and and that's that's how it would go. Um, So Reverend Ike put it this way. These are his words, not mine. He said, you are worthy of all God's goodness. You are divine royalty. Don't wait for heaven. Get it now with a cherry on top. It is the lack of money that is the root of all evil. The best thing you can do for the poor is not to be one of them. And that was the perspective. And so they created this theology that allowed them to justify opulent wealth, to turn greed into a virtue. 
And so mink coats and long fingernails. (laughs) I'm guessing the picture showed up back there. Why the long fingernails? Any idea? Nobody? Any guesses? No manual labor. A long fingernail indicated that you were above the station of manual labor. God's divine royalty. Do not work in the dirt. We do not do anything that would cause us to have any sort of... uh, what, what a, any sort of decay or anything. That was the idea behind long fingernails. And so one guy said it this way. We got tired of the anticipation part of the Christian faith. Now let me just say, I'm, I'm very critical of this, this kind of thinking. But I also want to say, consider where they came from. Slaves trapped for years, for, for, for a couple of centuries Uh, treated as inhuman, as cattle. And so there's a very real sense in which these preachers were speaking truth to the congregation. The congregation needed to know that they were divine royalty, that they were precious in God's sight. And so when they spoke with such enthusiasm and power about that aspect, I say amen too. It's just that they took it too far. And so often we do that as well. And so this mentality then merged with Norman Vincent Peale's power of positive thinking. God wants you to achieve whatever greatness you can imagine. You hold within yourself the keys to true greatness. And so the idea of I'm divine royalty, deserving of wealth, married the idea that I have limitless potential to fill my own dreams, and the child of that union, according to Bowler, is the prosperity gospel. And now the prosperity gospel took off Uh, like crazy. Um, How many of you guys have watched Christian television? Just out of curiosity. Oh, fair bit. Um, It it started kind of in the 1960s. By 1970, 45% of the Christian airwaves were dedicated to the prosperity gospel. Uh, By 1981, 83% of the Christian airwaves were dedicated to the prosperity gospel. And... uh, um, how many of you know who this, these, this couple is? Who is that? Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. You have been watching Christian television. Yeah, these guys in the 1980s were superstars. Um, in fact, the Christian resort and theme park that they built was called Heritage USA. And for a while there, it was America's third most visited attraction. Can you imagine Disney World, um, the Grand Canyon, and this place? I mean, this was amazing. It was, it was, and, and it was to come and, and celebrate the blessings that God had provided you with. And, um, and then, of course, the scandals hit and all this and the movement Uh, struggled for a bit, but then it it survived, it reinvented itself, and it has grown into a massive worldwide thing. You realize that all the biggest churches in the United States are prosperity gospel churches. You realize that this idea of prosperity gospel has infected South America and and Africa like crazy. And so many of the, the people that are stuck and mired in poverty have their hope in the fact that God wants them to be rich. And so it's a big, it's a big thing. 
Um, so is dollar sign theology right? No, it's not. The American dream is not the good news, and Jesus is emphatic about this in our text today. But here's the hard truth. Whether we officially believe in the prosperity gospel or not, we love our money, don't we? You can say yes. (laughs) We love our money, and we love the comforts it brings. We love our money individually. We love our money corporately as a church. And so we tend to to do things and buy things individually and as a church that benefit us. And it's a danger that we can fall into. And any course, any teaching that would even suggest that we part with our money is immediately met with disapproval and skepticism, isn't it? Yes, it is. Well, let's just look at these verses, okay? 19 through 21. Don't store up treasure here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasure in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Uh, Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Of course, this is fairly easy to understand, right? Earthly treasures don't last. Heavenly treasure does Put your energies into stockpiling heavenly treasures, not earthly treasures. If you're stockpiling earthly treasures, don't pretend you love God because you don't. Okay, we can go home now, right? Like, it's pretty simple. But, but, but I think there's a couple of questions we have to answer here. First of all, what do you think is earthly treasure? And secondly, what is heavenly treasure? First, what do you think is earthly treasure? What is Jesus talking about here? What is earthly treasure? What do you think? A little louder. Material things. What else? Any ideas? What's that? Power. Okay, go ahead. Having any, any more stuff than you actually need. Okay, now that's a tricky one because what do we actually need in the opulent Western world that we live in? But it's a fair question. What else? Bitcoin? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Status, okay? I think the, the earthly, um, uh, earthly treasure is kind of easy. It's, it's, it's material possessions. It's things that you can touch, hold, things that won't last. I think that's pretty clear. What do you think about heavenly treasure, though? What is Jesus talking about there? Somebody said the Great Commission. So going and spreading the gospel. Anything, any other ideas? Loving your neighbor, somebody said. I'm sorry? Okay, eternal life, this vision for a a future in heaven, starting now and going on forever. Taking care of widows and orphans, that's heavenly treasure. The things of God, okay? Okay, so taking those material possessions and actually sort of rerouting them into others instead of ourselves. We gotta have them. Okay, so you have to have material possessions if you're going to share them. Okay. Okay. Good. This is good feedback. Jesus doesn't actually say explicitly in this um, text 
what heavenly treasure is, but he does say it, I believe, in verses 22 and 23. It's just a little bit cryptic for us as 21st century readers. So let's look at it and see what he says. He says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep the darkness is. So that settles it for everybody? It's all clear now? It's like, what is this doing here? What, what, we're not talking about darkness and light and unhealthy eyes. Like, did, is this like a, an accident? How did this verse get here? I think... There's more to Jesus' use of healthy eye and unhealthy eye that his audience would have understood that we we wouldn't normally understand. And and let's see what we can learn. Healthy eye simply means working properly, a properly working eye, but it had an ethical meaning that the people of Jesus' day would have understood intuitively. They would have known what he was talking about. Here's the Greek word used in James 1.5. It's talking about God. It says this, if you need wisdom, ask our, what's the word? Generous God, same word for healthy. It's the very same word. Has an ethical meaning that's connected directly to generosity. Ask our generous God and he will give it to you. And so when you see healthy eye in this text in Matthew 6, I want you to think generous. It's talking about generosity, I believe. Now, what about the unhealthy eye? The word translated unhealthy in English is the Greek word for evil. Most, uh, most modern translations want to keep the parallelism, right? Healthy eye, unhealthy eye. But that word unhealthy is literally the word evil. And so what's going on here? Uh, the, the verse is literally saying when your eye is evil. But you have to realize that that, that was a turn of phrase in the first century. It was a Jewish idiom. So what do you think Jesus means when he says you have an evil eye? It was, it was, a, uh, it was a, a Jewish idiom that everyone would have understood. What do you think Jesus meant? Okay, your eye is full of darkness, like it says in the text, but, but what was he getting at? <laughs> What's the opposite of generosity, maybe? I don't know. Okay, you're not being generous and therefore being evil. But there was something, I think, specific that he was getting at. Somebody said it. Greed. Yeah. In, in the first century, if someone said you had an evil eye, everyone in the room would immediately know that this person was a greedy person or a stingy person. And so when you see unhealthy here, think greedy. Jesus is saying heavenly treasure piles up when we use our material possessions in generous ways to help us love God and love our neighbor. And when we we use our generous eye, our body is filled with light. But when we use our greedy eye, we're in darkness. And, I would add, when we create a theological system that turns our greed into a virtue, then the light you think you have is actually darkness and how deep that darkness is. Verse 24. Nobody can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other, or uh, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So here it is. Jesus says, you pursue God or you pursue money, you can't do both. And so your money, your material possessions are not intended to be stockpiled up and consumed by you. The same goes for us corporately as a church. 
Our corporate wealth is not to be stockpiled up and consumed by us as a church. That's not the purpose. Those resources are to be invested in God's kingdom through radical acts of generosity. The Christian who doesn't understand this is grossly misusing his resources exactly like this video clip I'm about to show you. Let me set it up quickly. Um, Basically, there's this woman. She buys her dad a gift, an iPad. And the dad is pre-technology era, so he doesn't really understand what the what the iPad is for. A couple weeks later, they're sharing a meal together, and she asks him, how is things going with your iPad? Would you all agree with me that the iPad is not for cutting vegetables? That is a tragic misuse of the iPad. (laughs) Some might disagree. (laughs) Would you all agree that a Christian's finances are not for his getting rich. This is equally a tragic misuse of resource. The generous eye sees assets as opportunities to bless people. The greedy eye just stockpiles assets for self-consumption. At this point, I'm like, oh, this is tough, right? We all live in a money-driven, capitalistic society. The whole point is to get ahead and to climb the ladder and to accumulate stuff. It's the air we breathe. Is there any hope for any of us to lay up treasure in heaven? Are we not all guilty of greed and stinginess? The only way forward is for Jesus to light us up, to see the infinite worth of heavenly treasure over earthly treasure. I think sometimes, too, we we think, like, I'm going to chase earthly treasure, and then eventually someday, when I have lots and lots and lots of earthly treasure, I'll turn it into heavenly treasure. But often what I've discovered happens is you just spend your whole life chasing earthly treasure with the empty promise that you'll turn it into heavenly treasure. I've seen that far too many times. If the dad in the video could only see how much more valuable an iPad is, he would stop using it as a cutting board. And if you and I could only see how much more valuable our resources are when we spend them on loving God and loving neighbor, we would stop misusing our resources on selfish desire. Can change happen for you and me? Yeah, it's called salvation. That's what Jesus does. He changes our hearts, points us heavenward instead of earthward. Jesus has to awaken you to what matters, and that's my prayer for you and me today. It's not a bad decision to loosen your death grip on what you cannot keep anyway and instead pour your resources into what will last forever. We have to do this individually, and we have to do this corporately. Here's one guy who changed. He saw the light. His name is Oscar Schindler. Early on in his life, he was characterized as a drunk, someone who practiced infidelity. In 1939, he made a wonderful step and joined the Nazi party. 
when the Germans conquered Poland, he moved to Poland and took over a, a big, huge factory that was run by Jews who were no longer able to work. And so he took over the factory, employed the Jews for ne next to nothing, and became wealthy beyond belief. A lovely fellow, would you say? This was his life. But when Oscar started to see the systematic extermination of the Jews, he came to the conviction that this was wrong. And the only way he could keep, he learned quickly, the only way that he could keep his workers from the gas chambers was through bribes and black market gifts. And so he began to spend down his huge pile of wealth to save his workers. And then he realized that the workers had families, and those families were being sent to Auschwitz. And so next thing you know, he was purchasing these exemption cards He'd get this 85-year-old Jewish grandma and this 5-year-old kid and he'd buy them exemption cards and say, these are essential workers in the factory. They're absolutely skilled laborers. We have to have them. And so he'd pay, pay tons and tons of money for these exemption cards. And then he realized late in the war that the SS was going to come in and, and liquidate the ghetto where all the Jews lived. And so he quickly organized a, a way to build these little apartments inside his uh, factory at his own expense and then he had to feed all these people and his pile of wealth just began to disappear until he was completely broke out of money but over the course of the war he managed to save 1200 Jewish people he never recovered financially from his his uh, heavenly treasure investment he's buried in Jerusalem with the title righteous among the nations what made him righteous he shifted from the darkness of a greedy eye to the brilliant light of a generous eye. His resources were rerouted into the noble work of saving lives. This is heavenly treasure. And it's this kind of stuff that the followers of Jesus need to be involved in. Pouring our resources into saving lives. That's heavenly treasure. Not the piling up of cars and toys and lavish vacations and big homes and bank accounts. That's earthly stuff. This is a tragic misuse of funds. You want to lay up treasure in heaven? Sponsor a child in Africa. Sponsor ten. A church this size could probably sponsor a thousand corporately. Make a big anonymous donation to an organization that is bringing the light of heaven to earth. Support somebody and make a difference in someone's life. Start your own charity. Build into your budget giving and generosity. This was a problem Mistin and I had early on. She's the generous one in our relationship. And I'm like, you're giving what to who? For how much? We have a budget here. So what we had to do is build generosity into our budget. We figured out how to do that. So, so do that. Actively pursue someone in need. Help them. Pay for someone's education. Get a well going in Africa. Help a refugee. Invite your neighbors over and uncork the better wine. Use your money to help make peace in the world. I think that's where Tim is right now. Isn't he in Iraq or somewhere bringing world peace or something? I, I love that kind of stuff. That's what we need to put our resources into. When it comes to our resources, we as individuals and churches should view ourselves as distribution centers. What comes in 
goes out in Jesus' name. Your money should not stay long with you. It should be funneled into good works which reveal love for God and love for neighbor. Now, at this point, I, I preached this sermon at our own church a couple weeks ago. And after the sermon, a lady came up to me and she said, look, I don't think you should preach this stuff. Um, because what's going to happen is the generous people in your church are going to feel guilty. And then they're going to give more than they're able and then they're going to be irresponsible with their finances. And that's a possibility. And so let me just say, if you are a super generous person, and you're like, I don't have any money left, but I'm going to, I'm going to go in debt to give, and I'm going to be irresponsible. Don't do that. Don't be irresponsible. But what I told this lady, uh, and what I will tell you, is that I, I think that's not the problem with most churches and most people. The problem with most churches and most people is not that we're too generous and become irresponsible. The problem is the exact opposite. And so that's why I think these kinds of messages are still worthwhile. And I think that's why Jesus says what he says in Matthew chapter 6. All right, I'm almost finished. Jesus says, Live in the light of the generous eye. Not in the darkness of the greedy one. Don't believe the blinding lie that tells you that God wants you to be rich. Greed is not a virtue. He doesn't even want you to worry about costs and expenses. That's what verses 25 through 34 are all about in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't worry about your clothing. Don't worry about where you're going to stay. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Just trust God and do good with the resources he's given you. That's the walk of faith. Pour your resources into the, into the coffers of heaven through radical acts of generosity. Is your treasure on earth or is it in heaven? Investing in earthly treasure is a bad idea. We're going to pause here. Pause for two moments. One for a moment of repentance and the other a moment of reflection. First of all, repentance. Maybe God's convicted you and you have, you have felt that uneasy feeling that maybe you are too stingy and maybe you are greedy. Maybe you have that evil eye. You can repent of that and Jesus will forgive you and fill you with light. That's the promise of that verse. And so maybe you need to take a moment and say, sorry. And then a moment of reflection. And that is simply to say, what is God wanting you to spend your resources on? What heavenly treasure Maybe God is bringing to mind somebody in need that you can help. Maybe God is bringing to mind something that you can do. Maybe God is bringing to mind something that's crazy. And right now you're like, there's no way. There is a way if God is in it. So let's pause for just a minute and then I'll pray. God, I repent in my own life. Greed and stinginess. Sometimes I can be very Scrooge-like, and that does not reflect the character of my Savior, Jesus. And so I'm sorry about that. I pray that you would fill me with the light of your Son so that I would become this person of radical generosity because Jesus has been radically generous to me. 
I pray that for the people in this audience today as well. God, that we would be gripped by the light of your gospel and that that light would turn us into people who are radically generous and who are storing up treasures in heaven. Amen.